During the course of the trial, Hans M. had to undergo at least three different examinations by three different doctors. The results of these examinations were supposed to help the judge assess whether Hans could be held accountable as a woman, not a hermaphrodite. Only if he was identified as a true woman, he would be liable for the crimes that he was accused of. Shortly after his arrest, Hans was examined by the forensic doctor Walter Kutscherer. Although a physician by training, Kutscherer's job was mainly to perform autopsies and to provide medical evidence for use in court. He was not a gynecologist or in any way specialized in determining a person's sex. So it's not a surprise that he did not feel to be in a position where he could give a definite answer and to provide the prosecution with the evidence they needed. In the medical report Kutscherer wrote for the trial, he ended with the following statements. The examined person states that she never had a menstrual period and has always had a masculine attitude. She also stated that she had undergone an operation to determine her sex, which was performed in Yugoslavia, and that after this operation, according to her statement, she was allowed to wear men's clothes and to adopt a male name. The answer to the question, which criteria should be used for the determination of a person's sex, is sometimes associated with great difficulties. In the scientific literature, the point of view is expressed that one should be guided primarily by anatomical, morphological aspects. However, other authors are of the opinion that the psychological behavior of the hermaphrodite and the subject attitude of the latter to a certain sex should also be taken into account. Since a physical examination often does not allow a definite decision about the sex, the surgical opening of the abdomen for the purpose of sex determination has been recommended and declared permissible. In the present case, the operation performed on M probably was such a procedure, the result of which, however, can no longer be determined due to the events of the war. You would think that the doubts that Kutscherer raised in his report would make the prosecution's argumentation of Hans' liability very difficult, but that wasn't the case. In fact, they interpreted Kutscherer's report in a way that all of the evidence pointed towards Hans M. being a true woman. They saw his male characteristics as proof that M. was an especially pronounced type of homosexual and therefore all the more guilty and potentially dangerous. Regarding the charges on basis of paragraph 129, they argued this as follows. The accused is apparently a particularly pronounced type of a homosexual in an active quasi-male sense. Her act is all the more reprehensible, because she has thereby remorselessly influenced the fate of another woman in the most unfavorable way. But Hans' sexuality was also used against him when the prosecution argued the charge of fraud. They regarded the documents that identified him as a man as forged. They framed it as follows. Only the accused herself had an interest in the forgery and it can only be concluded that she herself also carried out this forgery, especially since it is clear from her entire behavior that she was able to assert the satisfaction of her sexual urges with great determination. At a time where gender identity and sexuality were viewed as inevitably connected, Hans' nonconformity was seen as an expression of an especially dangerous form of sexual deviance. The only thing that could save him was if the court would not come to the conclusion that he was actually a biological woman, but would believe that his body had been identified as that of an intersex person. 
It would be a difficult task to convince the judge and jurors because the evidence was against him. Welcome to the third episode of Out of the Dark. In this episode, we will take a look at the medical reports that were included in the court files and what role medical opinions played in the trial. Again, queer theory plays a huge role in how we approach and contextualize the sources. So get ready for a close look at the heteronormative logic that criminalized Hans M's existence, led to him being put on trial and finally to be convicted. A key argument of queer theory is that the 19th century scientific discourse surrounding homosexuality laid the basis for heteronormativity in the Western world. It was only in the early 19th century that the term homosexuality became common in use. It arose as a description of a form of sexuality that deviated from the norm, the norm being opposite sex attraction. But in order to establish a norm, and demarcate it, behavior and existences that are outside of the norm have to be marked as socially unacceptable, as sick or even criminal by institutions like medicine and law. Like many others charged on the paragraph 129, Hans-Marta never identified as homosexual, which at that time was rarely used as a self-descriptor. The term homosexuality and the synonymous terms contrary sexual feelings and sexual inversion were only coined in the late 19th century and mostly used by psychiatrists. Before that, there was no term that specifically described same-sex desire, which didn't mean that it wasn't forbidden, but it was prosecuted less rigidly. The term heterosexuality entered common usage even later than the term homosexuality, because being heterosexual was conceived as the natural state and therefore didn't need a descriptor. It was self-evident and therefore didn't need to be named. In the court files belonging to the trial against Hans M., the terms homosexual and homosexuality are mentioned several times, while there is not a single mention of heterosexuality. Instead, it is referred to as being of a normal disposition. At the turn of the century, medical knowledge about homosexuality started to play an increasingly important role in how paragraph 129 was applied in Austria. It helped define norm and deviation, and doctors were regularly consulted in trials to decide whether a person was a true homosexual. Especially with women, it was often assumed that they were in fact pseudo-homosexuals who couldn't find a man and had been seduced by other women who had taken on male characteristics. During the trial against Hans M., doctors and judges tried to diagnose and decide whether he was a woman or a man, as there was not really an option of being outside or in between these categories. Being intersex was not considered a third option, but a disorder of sex development and it was assumed that their bodies too could be classified as belonging more to one sex than the other. In fact, in the 19th and 20th century, 
the bodies of intersex people were often used for medical experiments about what were the determining characteristics of male and female sex. Intersex bodies challenged the concept of a biologically based gender dichotomy. In her monograph, Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex, the historian Alice Strieger writes that the question of how to classify sexually ambiguous people led to an increasing importance of the categories male and female per se. Drager speaks of an age of gonads in which gonads were declared to be decisive sex markers. She writes, Without the material and consequent social problems presented by the hermaphroditic body, this particular construction of true sex, namely that sex is ultimately determined by the gonad, might never have occurred. Assigning people one of the two sexes is necessary in a heteronormative society. It isn't just a favoring of a heterosexual orientation. After all, in order to define sexual orientation as being either heterosexual or homosexual, one has to assume that every person can be defined as being either male or female. The notion of gender has only existed for a short time. Through a purely heteronormative lens, sex, gender, gender roles and sexuality can't be seen as separate from each other because according to this logic, the two sexes are understood as complementary, both biologically and socially. Through the 19th and 20th century, scientific writings promoted this notion while the law enforced it through discriminatory legislation, like paragraph 129, and it still favors heteronormativity today. The police investigation prior to the trial did not yield any proof that Hans M. had in fact undergone a surgical sex determination. There was no medical record or witness that would help his case. As a result of these accusations, Hans M. lost his job and had no assets to fall back on, as the court files indicate. Unemployed and without assets, Hans M. couldn't afford to hire a lawyer himself. As a consequence, the court had to assign him a public defender. Without any proof that he had received a diagnosis from Slovenian doctors, Hans M.'s chances of being found innocent were slim. But it helped M's case that the forensic physician Kutschera was also having doubts about the legitimacy of the trial. Not only did he point out in his report that it was not an easy task to determine a person's sex, during the trial he also brought up the possibility of overtestis, which means having female and male germinal tissue. He further explained that if that would be the case, it would explain why Hans M. felt himself to be a man. Kutschera did seem to believe that M had undergone a surgical sex determination since he had a fitting scar on his stomach and he considered it possible that the doctors might have found testicular tissue. He concluded his statement before the court by saying that while externally M resembles a woman, he would rather not give a definite answer. The judge then concluded that this would mean that M was certainly a woman. When asked whether it would make a difference for M's liability, Kutschera stated, When asked whether in the present case the presence of male sexual hormones could change the legal issue of paragraph 129, I must say that from a legal point of view, M would be regarded as a homosexual. 
Otherwise, every homosexual could claim to have gonads of the opposite sex in order to be excluded from punishment. The question of M's sex remained unanswered. Another hearing had to be scheduled. Hans M's attorney requested a psychological and another gynecological examination, which should clarify whether the defendant menstruated or not. The judge only granted the letter. Months would pass before Hans M had to appear before court again. Paragraph 129 didn't prohibit homosexuality explicitly. Instead, it forbade fornication that goes against nature, which essentially criminalized sexual act itself. Homosexuality was viewed as the underlying pathological disposition that would make people more prone to committing such a crime. The fact that Alma H., who described herself as being of a normal disposition, was never charged under paragraph 129, shows that in some cases it did make a difference whether the suspect was considered homosexual in the eyes of the court. Although paragraph 129 in theory made no distinction between the sexes, the number of trials against those considered to be women and those to be men differed enormously. The number of accused who were considered female was at around 5% in most years. This low percentage is often explained with female sexuality being regarded as less dangerous. Another explanation is that lesbians mainly met in private spaces. Regarding the socioeconomic position of the victims, unskilled workers were particularly affected by criminal prosecution, followed by middle-class public employees. Several historians have come to the conclusion that court rulings were far from consistent and often full of contradictions. Depending on the respective judge and the political regime, gender nonconformity was handled differently. For example, the legal historian Ilse Reiter Zadlukal pointed out that in individual cases and under certain conditions, trans and other gender nonconforming people did not necessarily face criminal prosecution but were granted legal permission to live their gender. She came across two cases in which legal sex changes from female to male were permitted in Nazi Austria. Reiter Zadluko points out that concerning legal possibilities, post-war Austria was regressive compared to the Nazi regime. From 1983 to 2006, the so-called transsexual decree was in effect which made gender-affirming surgery necessary to obtain a change in one's personal status. Legal measures from the past that granted gender non-conforming people some protection were mostly specific permits handed out by the authorities. They allowed the carriers of those permits to wear the clothing of the opposite sex. The historian Hannah Hacker found proof that police permits to wear men's clothing had already been issued in the territory of Austria-Hungary before 1900. It is therefore possible that Hans M. had received a similar permit. The most famous example of such a permit is the so-called Transvestitenschein, which translates as transvestite certificate. It was famously issued by the sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld in Berlin. In Germany, as well as in Austria, there was no specific law that forbade wearing clothing of the opposite sex. 
Although there was no explicit ban, so-called transvestites, who would nowadays fall under the category of transgender, non-binary, cross-dressers and others, were at risk of being reported for disturbing the public. Magnus Hirschfeld advocated for the decriminalization of homosexuality, as well as allowing people to live the gender they wanted to. In 1999, in accordance with the Berlin police, he started handing out the Transvestitenschein to protect gender non-conforming people from being arrested by the police. In a lot of cases, cross-dressers and trans people were passing, meaning they were not identified by others as such and therefore wouldn't be reported. However, whenever they were identified as such, they were perceived as suspect and dangerous, either for being thought of as homosexual or for being criminals of some kind, like spies or pickpockets. One of the newspaper articles about the arrest of Hans M. is an example of how gender non-conforming people were seen as suspect, but the gender non-conformity wasn't criminal per se. After M.'s arrest, the Steirerblatt reported on his story and that of his male counterpart, who had been allowed to wear women's clothing, quote, since, after all, women are not forbidden to wear men's pants today either, unquote. They wrote that Hans was being observed by the police on suspicion of homosexuality, but since he had not yet turned out to be homosexual, the Steirerblatt concluded that it had to be a real case of transvestism. For those who had been assigned the female sex at birth, it was considered suspicious to exhibit typical attributes of the opposite sex. The historian Hannah Hacker showed that in the writings of 19th century sexologists, smoking, an interest in politics, aversion to housework and other behaviors not deemed as typically feminine were considered signs of homosexuality. However, not all sexologists thought that people who did not conform to sexuality and gender norms should be criminalized or medically treated. Magnus Hirschfeld was among the few who publicly opposed the criminalization of homosexuality. He stood up for queer people who were in danger of being put in prison or asylums because of the sexuality or gender identity. Hirschfeld also acted as a medical expert before courts and denied the criminal responsibility of people tried under paragraph 175, which was German equivalent to Austria's paragraph 129. Hirschfeld also opposed the common view that homosexuality was the result of a nervous disease, but instead attributed it to variations in the gonads. Based on his research, he developed the concept of different so-called sexual intermediates. To Hirschfeld, sex was a spectrum that ranged from the poles of full man to full woman, with homosexuals, bisexuals and transvestites to be found somewhere in between. From today's point of view, this is of course utter nonsense, but it shows that notions of sexuality, gender, gender identity and gender expression didn't exist at that time, at least not in Western society. In Western society, where any deviations from heteronormativity were criminalized, there was simply no use for those concepts because there was no space for queer existence. In the months leading up to the second trial, 
Hans M. and his lawyer presented several pleas for clemency to the court and to the Austrian president. They argued that Hans was not dangerous, that he wasn't aware of committing a crime, and he wouldn't do it again in the future. The court should consider not punishing him, since the news coverage about Hans had already done enough damage. In one of these letters, Hans wrote the following. I have made a comprehensive confession of facts without reservation and have shown that I am unfortunately by nature of a contrary sexual disposition. But I have also declared that I will suppress this feeling and have been able to do so for years and days since the accusation. I still feel morally obligated to care for Alma M and to provide for her livelihood, as far as my more than modest income makes it possible. The purely sensationalistic presentation of my criminal case in the daily papers already puts my future at risk. Only a few weeks before, the Austrian Minister of Justice, who was a social democrat, had publicly questioned the purpose of paragraph 129. He viewed it as an outdated and unjust legislation that was the last remainder of a legislative system that put protecting morality before protecting citizens. Still, Hans' pleas for clemency fell on deaf ears, and the second hearing was scheduled for April. This time, it was the forensic physician Lorenzoni who served as an expert witness in court. Lorenzoni hadn't examined Hans M. himself, but referred to the report made by Kutschera and the new gynecological report that had been prepared in the meantime. This new report did in fact confirm that Hans did not menstruate, which had led the gynecologists to believe that the uterus and the hormonal balance might be dysfunctional. Before court, Lorenzoni stated that this report proved that Hans was a woman with the rare condition of defective ovarian function. When asked by the prosecution about the gynecological report and the report Kutscherer had written for the first trial, Lorenzoni said that it was quite simple to answer what the relevant findings of these reports were. The defendant was to be considered a woman. The public prosecutor asked whether a person, despite having certain primary and secondary sexual characteristics, could internally be of the other sex. Lorenzoni answered that since Hans M. had these typically female characteristics, it was proven with certainty that this Woman must also have ovaries. Lorenzoni had thereby sealed Hans M's fate. Contrary to Kutschera, Lorenzoni was willing to make a definite statement about the true sex of Hans M, just as the court had wanted him to. In the trial records, there is no evidence that Lorenzoni considered or mentioned the difficulties of determining the sex of a person with ambiguous characteristics or Hans' psychological attitude. On April 6, 1950, Hans M. was sentenced to seven months prison time. In the guilty verdict, his strong homosexual inclination is cited as an aggravating factor. Paradoxically, it is also considered a mitigating factor with the reasoning that he couldn't help his homosexuality. In the end, Hans M. didn't go to prison, but instead he had to complete a three-year probationary period The newspapers mockingly reported about Hans M's depressed reaction to the verdict and the despair in his face when the judge told him that from now on he must call himself Martha again. But the court file doesn't end with the guilty verdict against Hans M in 1950. 
and neither does Hans M's fight to be officially recognized as a man. Join us for the next episode if you want to hear more about Hans' life after the verdict and his fight for having it repealed.